Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the manager of the Oakland A's, Mark Gotze. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with another buddy of mine. Played 17 years in the big leagues. And he's the current manager of the Oakland Athletics. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Kotze. Kotze, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. First year in the books as a skipper. I got skipper I got skipper buddies all over the place. We got Aaron. I, you know, I, I try to keep up with all of you and watch your you know, your teams during the year. How was it? First first year as the skipper, you've been in the game for a while now. You've done a lot of jobs in a lot of different capacities, but being the top dog, how was that first year for you? How did it sink in? What'd you learn? Uh, you let me know. Yeah. You know, Brett, um, obviously it's, it was exciting to, uh, to get this opportunity especially with a, an organization, um, you know, in the Oakland athletics that I, that I played for, um, that I had a lot of relationships built in and, uh, and had coached for under uh, Bob Melvin for six years. So to, to be given this opportunity to lead this, this group, um, you know, it was exciting. Um, there was a lot of uh, transition, a lot of change that took place uh, on our roster uh, right away in spring training. Once the lockout ended, uh, that I had to manage through and navigate and uh, and rebuild a culture really uh, with a group that uh, you know was was left um, you know without a Matt Olson, a Matt Chapman, a Chris Bassett, a Sean Manaya. Uh, we could go on, but uh, really the core nucleus of a group that that had a lot of success for about four or five years together, and uh, you know overall uh, the challenges um, you know that we knew we would face uh, with a younger group and with some of the veteran players that were left behind. Uh, I thought we did a great job uh, at, at integrating them and, uh, and motivating them and just having energy every day to show up and, and play to win uh, because that's what the big leagues is about. And, and you would know that better than anybody. Uh, it's not about developing at the big league level. It's, it's about winning games. So overall the experience from my year from sitting here um you know, as a first-year manager, gone through a long season uh, that wasn't successful uh, if you just look at the wins and losses. But I think the success lies in building the culture that that we needed to uh, establish um, going forward to, to have success in these coming years. You're right, too. You, you touch on a, on a uh, subject of at the big league level. It is about winning. It's about W's and L's at the minor league level. There's a lot of developing going on. And, you know, of course, you always want to win no matter where you're at. But in the big leagues, you're right. And uh, you had a young team this year. You're building that culture. You know, it's it's uh, it's not always that you, you get a big league position, let alone, you know, inherit a, 
an 80, 90, 100 win team. It's a building process and, and you're in that process. You had a lot of young players you mentioned at the top, Chapman and Ole, you know, you had your veteran corner, all of a sudden they're gone, you know, makes the, makes the dynamic a little bit different, bringing in kids that have never been to the big leagues. They're cutting their teeth and, and it's a process and uh, you got to stick with the process, trust that, build that culture you're talking about and go on. Cots, you've played for a lot of a lot of real successful, iconic managers, and you're starting with Augie Garrido, who's one of my favorites. Never played for him, uh, been around him quite a bit. Uh, you know, one of the legendary college coaches. Uh, you played for Bobby Cox. You played for Boach. We both played for Boach. Uh, Frank Kona, Leland was your rookie skipper. Buddy Black, Ozzie Gian in there, who who I played. I played with in Atlanta when he was a player, but. All these managers you've played with over the year, any of that, obviously you were under Bob Melvin, Bo Mel. Uh, I had him in Seattle. Did you take through the years formulating how would Mark Kotze be as a manager? Did you take these guys into consideration and learn on the way? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, the biggest thing I did through my career was really try to learn uh, as much as possible uh, throughout those 17 years from guys uh, that I obviously had a, a lot of respect for and for my man from my managers. So it wasn't just from the managers, but it was from my peers, from my teammates, uh, which I was blessed to play with a lot of uh, amazing players, uh, Hall of Fame players throughout my career uh, that I would take things from one of our best friends, Trevor Hoffman, um, you know, who I respect uh, the way he went about his business, the teammate that he was. Um, but then you, you know, you, as you said, you, you look at the managers, uh, throughout my career and each one kind of gave something different. Uh, you look at Ozzy Gian and, 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 you know, you think, well, what would Ozzy have given you? Well, this guy wanted to win more than anybody. Um, and that's not to take away from any of those managers that I played for any of the rest of them. They all, every manager wants to win, but, but, uh, Ozzy had a way about him. Uh, he had a little sarcasm to him. Uh, but he was honest. He and if you didn't want to hear what he had to say, don't don't go ask him why you aren't in the lineup. He'll he'll have the reason, and he'll tell you right to your face the reason. So, uh, Bobby Cox, top step, you know, uh, you'd punch out on a ball, and by the next thing you know, Bobby's screaming and yelling at the umpire, and he's gone. A little bit like your brother, uh, you know, <laughs> in New York. So, um, but yeah, I did take away from from each one and uh, tried to mold myself uh, and, and be myself uh, in that dugout with this club, with, with the, with the future of the Oakland A's, uh, showing these young guys, you know, what it takes to, to, to play in the big leagues and building that culture, uh, that you have to come in every day and prepare, uh, to win a baseball game. Gotcha. Played a long time. And, uh, you know, we deal with it as players, 162 game schedule. It is a grind. And some years it, it seems to go by quicker. Those winning seasons, some years are, it seems like 262 games, but this year, for the first time, you went through it as a manager. Um, how is it different from player to manager dealing with the ups and downs uh, of 162 games? Player you to know, manager. Yeah, that, that's a great question, Brett. And I learned that this year um, through uh, a 10-game losing streak that, you know, really every loss you wear as a manager. And as a player, there's, there's things you can take away uh, each night that you can feel, you know, a slight bit of success from, right? And you and I both know that. You go four for four, but your team loses. 
you, you you feel the loss, but you don't take that loss back to the hotel. You don't take it back to uh, a, a room where you sit alone and think about what could I've done better. Or, and, and as a manager, you wear you wear every loss. And I and I think through the end of April, middle of May, into May, we had a ten game losing streak where it was a difficult process. Uh, understanding as a manager that. Um, you know, you have to let those losses go. You have, to, and, and you do that as a player, but really, um, you know, you're, you're the leader of the group and the wins and losses, uh, go behind your name. Um, they don't as a player, the season does. Um, but as a manager, uh, you feel responsible for every one of those. And, uh, and it's difficult there. There's a, there's a learning curve to it. And I think, uh, this season taught me a lot about myself. It taught me a lot about, um, you know, this, this position and, uh, and the responsibilities of it, but more than that, just, uh, the emotion of it. And, and there are times when as a manager, uh, you're out there and you feel alone. Um, and, and I think the greatest thing that you can have, um, is a, is a staff around you that, that, that supports you, that cares about, uh, the same things that you care about and, and really, um, grinds, to uh, every day to show up and provide that energy, um, you know, that it takes for the, like you said, for that 162 game season. As an outsider, it's easy for me to call you and say, Hey, Cots, man, hang in there. You're doing all right. Looking at your roster, looking at the, say you're playing the Houston Astros who want just won the, uh, just won the world series. My opinion, analyzing things, they're the best team in baseball, just pure and simple. Best team in baseball should win the World Series. But when you're in that skipper seat, you know, it's tough because you can call your I know as a player, I'd call my dad, wife, anybody I could to just give me a little bit like, yeah, it's going to be OK. Um, and, and from the outside, it's easy to sit there and say, no, he's he's, you know, this roster versus this roster. But where you're in that heat, I, I can see what you're saying. You know, it wears on you and and you live and die with each win. I mean, the great times are great and the tough times are really tough. Cots, as a player, and I don't know about yourself, just just my experience as a player. I don't remember too many times after a winning a winning streak, a losing streak, a, a real rough game, sitting around with the guys after the game, go, man, Skipper really screwed us tonight. It was his fault. You know, it was always kind of put, we put the onus on ourselves. Now, first year in that in that manager seat, just ballpark. How many how many games wins and losses do you think solely rides on a manager that you could just in your judgment? I mean, it's probably less than five, uh, to be honest, Brett. The the way the game is played now, um, and, and and no different than when when we played. But I think as you're talking about from a manager's perspective and the moves that we make that may have impact on a game, um, I think that it, it, it's not as as uh, often um, when we do something that we impact the game you know, uh, to the point of a win and a loss. There's always, as you know, in the nine inning span, uh, opportunities that aren't taken advantage of that, you know, runner on third, less than two outs. You don't get the run in the third inning, you know, which would have impacted the game in the sixth or the seventh. So we didn't add on, you know, and, uh, and, and for me, um, you know, it really comes down to you know, the players playing. 
and they impact the game. They win and lose games. Um, and I think the manager, uh, the biggest responsibility uh, in looking at this season was obviously getting them prepared to play and putting them in the right situation for sure. Uh, but once the game starts, there, there's uh, there's very few moves that are made from a manager's position that that impact a win or loss. Tough division you're in now. You had the Astros world champs. Dusty finally got his his ring. Um, but for you personally, is it is it kind of surreal or kind of a little bit odd to see your buddies in the other dugout, like seeing Nev in Anaheim this year? Uh, and for those listening to the Boone podcast, we're talking about Phil Nevin. He's a mutual friend of, of Mark and myself. Uh, next year in that same division, Texas, Boach is coming in, a guy you played for, guy we've hung out with, all of us have hung out with, played golf with. Um, is that a little Is that a little surreal for you, a little different? Now, now I'm going against Boach. Now I'm going against Phil. Yeah, the Boach one will definitely be different. Um, you know, it was like managing – uh, and looking across at, 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 you know, a future Hall of Fame manager, a, a guy I played for that I, I looked up to that uh, I actually uh, called quite a bit this season for, you know, just to talk as a, as a mentor, uh, someone that's, that's been in the shoes and, and had the ups and downs. I remember playing for Boach uh, with the pods and not having success and, you know, having a bad season, I think we lost 90 games or so. Uh, and you look at Boach and he's a three-time World Series champion. So, um, but it's great. You know, the, the common denominator is that that we um, that we all want to beat each other <laughs> end of the day. So Nothing changed. Uh, yeah, you know, nothing's changed. Whether it's in a card game, whether it's on the golf course, or whether it's managing a baseball game, um, you know, somebody has to lose. And uh, and at the point when it's it's a win or a loss, you don't care if he's your friend or not, right? <laughs> Without a doubt. Uh, I want to go back to your college a little bit. Cal State Fullerton, you went there from, I think, 94 to 96. And I, I mentioned him at the top, Augie Garrido. Uh, never played for him. We we do many, you know, golf events where Augie would show up and I felt like I knew him. I, he was almost like a like a, a Dusty Baker figure in the college realm. He, when I when I see Dusty, when I played against him, I played against him for years and years and years. I felt like I knew him, but I really didn't know him. You know, it was passing by during batting practice. What's up, Dusty? Hey, Booney. I felt like and I think he has that way about him that makes you feel like. Uh, you're a part of him, even though you never played for him. I looked at Augie Garrido a little bit that way in my interactions with him through the years. Um, just kind of a special guy. And, and I don't know why he had that it factor. Speak a little bit about Augie Garrido. Yeah, so Augie, uh, hands down, um, probably impacted my life uh, right next to you know my dad. Um, and, and the influence that my dad had as I grew up, but Augie kind of took over in that adolescent, that, that young adult, uh, time frame, as we talked about, I was 17 when I got to college and, uh, and, and standing in front of a man that was a legend at the time, uh, you know, won a world series championship that was looked at in college baseball as, as one of the you know best college baseball coaches. Um, I was honestly in awe that uh, I was given going to get this opportunity to play for uh, not only Augie, but, but for Cal State Fullerton. 
which was a perennial powerhouse at the time. Um, you know, we talked about Phil Nevin uh, and 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 his success there. Um, but Augie made you feel important, I guess. And and when you talk about Dusty Baker, uh, I, I truly couldn't be happier for for someone more happy for Dusty uh, sitting here thinking about you know him finally winning a World Series, deservingly so. And uh, and then thinking about you know Augie, it, I think it's a great comparison, Brett, because both men have this charisma about them. Uh, when you walk by them, they're smiling. If they don't know you, they'll they'll get to know you really quickly and not forget you. And uh, and you know Augie was about relationships. And this is the biggest thing I took away from 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 Aug was was the value of the relationship. And uh, all you gotta do is. And the value of life, really. Um, you, know, you click on, uh, if you Google Augie Garrido rant, and even though you're saying to yourself, why is he doing this to these young men? Why is he that passionate about a game? It wasn't about the game. It was about them growing up and accepting responsibility for the decisions they were making. Like He taught life through baseball, which is unbelievable. And, and and I'm so thankful for that relationship. You you make a great point, Cots, and and it's not talked about enough. Um, you know, we're so caught up, especially nowadays, with with kids' sports the way it is, youth sports. You know, all these travel teams, and my kids are going to be the best. This and that. It's always like, oh, who's the best coach I want to send them to? And I remember just with my kids. Uh, that was never a thought of who's the best baseball guy out there. When you're sending your, your, your son or your daughter away and, and they're going to play a sport in college, it's like, who do I want him to be his second father away from home? It's not about teaching him how to, how to hit the mechanics of hitting. Uh, it's about, like you said, what Augie did, teaching you about life. You'll learn how to hit. We all know how, to, if you can hit, you'll always be able to hit and, and you work that out in the cage when no one's around thousands of swings, it's trial and error. It's my hand here. It's my feet here. It's open. It's closed. We figure that out as players, but nobody can replace that time, especially those, those vulnerable years when you're 17 to 21, when you're, you're going from a young man into a, a full grown man uh, and the influences that, that, that adults in your life can make. And, and I think that's so important. It's not, it's not important. To who's the best teacher. It's no, who's going to be the best uh, influence on me. The, the best example, like I said, the father away from home, I think, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to the fact that Augie was that guy for you. And, and that's how I always, that's the vibe I always got being around him. always humble, always, uh, and maybe even overly humble, you know, you know, when he'd come to our golf tournaments and he'd always he'd be thanking people all the time, like I'm not worthy to be in the room, you know, with all the big league guys, because, you know, he was never a big leader. But it, we're looking at him like, Augie, you're you're kind of a legend uh, of college, yeah, I'll, I'll college sure. baseball. I mean, who's who's bigger than him? Maybe the uh, Rod Dato might be the only bigger coach in the history of college baseball. Yeah, I can I can share a, a story alongside that note about Og and, and him showing up at our golf tournament and always taking a back seat to to us. Um, I took Og to spring training 
I believe it was 2016, and uh, with a good friend of ours, Joe Martelli, who was uh, uh, one of Og's best friend. And so I brought him in the locker room, and we're sitting in the coach's room. And it's me and Og and, and a bunch of the coaches on the staff and the A's, and I was at the time the bench coach. And very proud to bring Augie in there. And, uh, and Og kind of sat in the corner, and all of a sudden, Billy Bean walks in. And Billy was like, Augie Garrido. And Og kind of like, you know, hey, hey, Billy, you know, but the the respect immediately from Billy Bean to Augie Garrido was was just it it showed itself in the room. And and yet Augie just was so humble that, you know, oh, I appreciate, you know, nice to meet you, Billy. You know, thank you for letting me in here. I mean, it was just just as, as what you talked about. Right. The humility was amazing from that man. So. Yeah, pretty pretty awesome guy. Um, played at Cal State from '94 to '96. You won a College World Series. Uh, you were an All American two of those years. You won the Golden Spikes in 1990, uh, 1995. Um, and this is where it gets interesting for me. I, everybody knows Mark Kotze as a as a hitter, center fielder, uh, not as a pitcher. But in college, and this is before what we're what we're seeing right now, and you got to see him this year quite a bit being in the same division. You were a stud closer at college and and uh, and offensive player and all American for two years. I mentioned that. But what you're seeing, to, did you ever cots for a second coming out of college thinking, oh, I could I could do both or was it always I got to pick one? No, I, I did think I could pitch, but the velocity wasn't there that I felt like I needed to close, at, you know. And so I knew I could hit and I knew that I'd probably get to the big leagues on a fast track if I ditched the pitching and just hit. And I felt like it was going to take a longer um, time frame to to be really good at both and, and to show that I was really good at both. I think the development side of the pitching would have taken a little bit longer. Um, maybe I wouldn't have had two back surgeries through the career, but um, maybe, an, maybe an elbow surgery, but um, no, I think, you know, and, and I know who you're alluding to, you're, allu- you're alluding to, to Shohei and, and what Otani's done uh, is, is remarkable. It's, it really is. I mean, I would not have told you, uh, you know, five years ago that a player would be able to dominate on the mound and also offensively. I can't, I, I can't believe what I'm watching and, and uh, you know, I can believe a lot of things, but to, because I know the work it takes and, and you were alluding yeah. to the fact that as hitters, man, hitting is so hard and we've been through it. It's just a grind and it's in the cage and my swing isn't right. And it's hundreds and hundreds of swing and it's video and it's prep and it's in the training room getting ready for a game every night. Couple that with, okay, now all of a sudden you got to pitch every fifth day. So you got to do all the band work and you got to do the pitchers routine they do in between starts. You got to throw your bullpen. If you would have told me that, and and I think that's fair, five years ago, that there's going to be not only somebody doing it, but doing it at an all-star level on both sides, I'd say you're crazy. It's impossible to do that at the big league level. There's too much. It's too physical. It's too this. And now I'm watching this guy, and I'm in awe. And and uh, 
it, it's funny to me because it's almost like he knows, you know, he, he's real humble and he has that smile and he's a likable guy. He's charismatic, but it's almost like he knows, like I'm doing something so crazy. I mean, when he steals a base and just stands up and just gives you that wry smile, it's almost like, yeah, I know how special this is what I'm doing. Cause no one's ever done it before. I, I just think, how can you keep this up, you know, at this level to, to play this hard to hit, to be to be approaching 40 home runs and then doing what he's doing on the mound. It, it's remarkable. I never thought I'd see it, but it's it's truly special what's going on with with Shohei Otana or yeah. Shohei Otani. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, um, you know, watching him from from the other dugout. And and in, in you know his work, he puts work in, and he's out there, um, you know. But he, I think he's coming into his own even more, Brett, which is scary because now he knows his routine. He knows what he has to do. I think he's got it kind of dialed in from from his bullpens and how much he needs to throw or when he needs to touch and feel, um, you know. And and I think I, I it's scary because he's in our division. Um, we faced him the last day of the season. Uh, I think we faced him four, maybe maybe six times. Um, and it's just, it's electric stuff. And then, you know, they're, they're offensively, uh, you know, you 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 got to just make pitches. Um, he's a good hitter, controls the zone pretty well. And, and like you say, he's got electric speed. I don't even know what to you know, if I were if on the business side of things, if I'm in front office, I don't even know what to do. It's like, OK, they're you know, right now it's out there. Are they going to trade him? Or are they not going to trade him? What's the number? I mean, what is the number? What if he does it again? OK, you did it last year. Uh, you know, he's right there in the MVP hunt. If he doesn't get it this year, it's only because of what Aaron Judge did. But it's like as a number, what do you throw out? Like I'm one of the best pitchers in the world. And by the way, I'm one of the best hitters in the world. So. Judging yeah. by scale, I need sixty million. Well, now can I trust that you're going to do it on both sides for the rest of your career? I don't even know what the number is. I wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah, there's not a comp. Definitely not a there's, comp. There's and, no comps. Uh, He's going to set it. Yeah, he will set it for sure. 1996, uh, your first round pick, ninth overall, uh, and you played an Olympic team that year and played for another college legend, Skip Bertman. Um, and I was looking at the players. You had Weaves on that team, Parquet, Troy Gloss, Jock Jones. Um, how was that Olympic experience? I didn't have the Olympic experience, Mark. I had the uh, – it was an off year, you know. So our juniors um, from that year, they all signed. Whereas, whereas, you know, for those of you listening, usually on an Olympic year, back in those days, uh, the best juniors in the world, the first round picks, they would usually forego signing right away. And so they were able to have that Olympic experience. So, you know, bottom line is the team was better because you had the best players in the country. My year it was mostly sophomores and, and freshmen. So we had a little bit of a different uh, run than you probably did. Tell me about that Olympic experience. I think you want, what'd you end up winning? Bronze medal? We did. Yeah. And, and that was a big disappointment for that team. Um, you know, us as individuals, uh, we came together the summer before. So as sophomores, we ended up in Millington, Tennessee, uh, forming that 96 team, um, you know, and uh, as we as we were successful throughout that summer, 
Uh, it led us to the 96 summer. And as you talked about, there, there's some legit names on that team. I think the majority of us played in the big leagues. Uh, and the majority of us were first round draft picks. What's funny, Brett, is the draft took place while we were in Millington, Tennessee, prepping for the Olympics, uh, in dorm rooms or, or military barracks. And, and it was funny, no cell phones, right? Pagers back then. And, uh, they would come and get us out of the room. Uh, as you talked about, I was the ninth pick. Chris Benson was the first pick. And he was in a dorm room down from us and, and he would go to, he went down to Skip's office and got on the phone and came back. You know, I got drafted one, one and everybody else is sitting around. And I mean, Braden Looper was the third pick. Travis Lee was the fourth pick. Um, uh, there was someone else in there that was on the team, maybe seven or eight. And then I got taken ninth. Uh, but there was a ton of first rounders on that team. So we we had a lot of great talent, as you talked about. We got to the Olympics and um, we knew our nemesis was we looked beyond Japan because we had dealt with Japan for two two summers and had pretty much beat him. Well, we they show they throw a pitcher we had not seen. And this the best, one of the best splits I'd seen uh, as as a hitter. Uh, I think I punched out three times and and just didn't. I mean, we got we got boat raced um, to qualify to play in the gold medal game. So Japan played Cuba and uh, it was a big disappointment. Um, I can remember going back to the dorm after we lost and just saying, what are we playing for? I wouldn't come here to play for the bronze. But um, at the end of the day, you know, uh, our staff, Skip, brought us together and and uh, reminded us that we're representing our country and that we need to go out and win a bronze medal. And we did. Um, we got to stand on the podium, which was a great moment. And uh, as eager as I was to to start my pro career, I was the only one on the team to literally fly home, pack a bag, fly to Chicago and go play for the A-ball uh, affiliate for the Marlins like two days after the Olympics ended and uh, finished that season. Went to Instructional League, flew to Hawaii Winter League, and uh, showed up to my first big league spring training after playing basically like the whole year of baseball and uh, and and was an eye opener when you walk into a clubhouse with Bobby Bonilla and Gary Sheffield and you know Jim Meisenreich, John Cangelosi and, and, a, and a 1997 world championship uh, team that was forming at the time. Did you play in Cuba for the uh, during that during that summer? It. I played. We didn't. We didn't. Go ahead. Well, we didn't travel. We didn't get to leave the country because everybody wanted to come to the States to play and get acclimated. Right. So they came in and we played in the States for two summers. We didn't get to do any international travel. It was it was amazing because you you talk about those Millington, those barracks. Yeah, I stayed in those barracks. I know exactly what you're talking about. But we went we went to Cuba and you're talking about getting both boat raced by Japan. Well, we show up to Cuba and, you know, we're a bunch of cocky young Jeremy Burnett's is on my team, but we're all sophomores and, and there's freshmen on our team. And, uh, you know, we're thinking we're pretty good. So the Cuban national team, I forget, they were coming back from something. So they were late showing up. I remember the first day we're taking BP and it's kind of a bandbox, uh, the Cuba facility. And we're just, you know, we're watching them hit. And they're kind of like at the time, because it's their best in the, you know, in their country. And it's our best freshman and sophomore. They kind of train like 
like big leaguers. You know, everything wasn't max effort. They're not sitting in BP, seeing how far they, they're working on things. They're working on things. But us as kids are just watching Cuba go, oh, we're going to kick the crap out of these guys. No problem. I'll tell you what, Cots, for three days in Cuba, I've never had a beating that bad. I, it was mercy rule every day. And it was like men teaching children a lesson. And it was uh, it was it was amazing. You know, I think um, Fidel, he was going to show up, didn't show up or, or he might have. But but it's like, you know, this team's so bad. Cuba's kicking the crap out of us so much. But uh, man, what what an experience it was going over there and seeing that. But but I know what you're talking about when you say uh, getting boat raced because we definitely got boat raced. Um what day ball back in Chicago? You got to the big leagues quick. You're in the big leagues a year later in 1997. And uh, you get your cup of coffee. Jimmy Leland, first skipper. I, I got a story for you about Leland. How was he as your first skipper? He, old school. That's as old school as they get right there. He was the best. He was the best. Uh, you know, spring training, um, like you said, 21 years old, first round draft pick. And playing with with these guys that that were grown men, and uh, you know, I held my own. I had a great spring training. Uh, there was a week left to go in camp. I was still there, and uh, he brought me into uh, the coach's office. and And I'm sure you've been in this office in Vero Beach. We're playing the Dodgers, and it's a tiny little small room. And uh, Milton May was my hitting coach or the hitting coach at the time. He was standing in there with Tommy Sant and uh, Richie Donnelly. And, and they're all laughing. I walk in and, and he says, Hey, uh, this is, this is Skip. This is Leland. He says, uh, you, you think you can make this team? And I, I looked at him and I said, uh, I, no, I don't think I can make this team. He says, you're goddamn right. You can't make this team. And, you know, and he said, but, but what do you want to do? You've, you've done enough to stay here. You want to, you want to, continue, you know, playing here. You want to go meet your teammates that you're going to play with, you know, and I said, I want to go meet my teammates. I want it out of there. Right. But, um, that impression, um, got me called to the big leagues that year, July 11th of 97. I get called up from double a, I walk into the big league locker room at like 1230 and, and Leland walks around the corner with his sliders on and a t-shirt and he says, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> it's like, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. Right. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> Well, not this early, goddammit. We're not. It's 1230, you know? So, and uh, and I was just so excited that I was going to be in the big leagues. And then uh, he says, well, uh, you know who you're facing tonight? And I said, yeah, I'm facing Kurt Schilling. He goes, well, you think you can get a hit? <laughs> I mean, just priceless stuff. But uh, I love, I love Jim. Um, we talk. Uh, he's, he's still a good friend and mentor. Um, you know, when I interviewed for the, the, the tiger job, he picked me up from the hotel and we, we drove together and, and had some shared some good memories. And, uh, he's one of the best. Jimmy Leland. And, and I've never really had a conversation with him, but I, I get my first all-star game. Uh, you know, I get, I, I'm so excited. I made the all-star team finally. And, and I get there and, and Jimmy's the, he's the skipper and he didn't say much, you know, a few words here and there. Um, but we go out. I remember the whole game. I wasn't starting. So it was like myself and, and Jason Kendall and Greg Vaughn. I remember the three of us, we were kind of hanging together during the game and, uh, it comes about the eighth inning. The three of us haven't played yet. And 
Leland comes down or, or Leland's assistant, whoever, and said, hey, you guys, you three, you know, grab a bet. You know how it is. It's just I, I didn't care. It was like I was just so excited that I was there. Of course, I want to get an AB, but if I don't get one, no big deal. So Kendall's out there. Kendall, I think, ends up making the last out of the game. Vaughn was in front of him and I'm on deck. I never get in the game. Now, you know, I'm going to hear it from my teammates a little bit when I go home. Oh, yeah, you didn't even play. But I didn't really care. But I remember Jimmy coming up to me because he felt really bad. And he had, a, you know, he had that cigarette and he had it cupped in his hand with his head down. And I'm booting up. Hey, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. I didn't get you in the game. It wasn't that big of a deal to me. I said, Jimmy, I understand. Now, going forward, they, they have things, foolproof things nowadays where where they make sure everybody gets in the game. But that was that was my story with Leland. And he just I, I remember he, he kind of felt he really did feel bad. I tried to make him, uh, you know, I tried to ease him a little bit saying, hey, it's not that big of a deal. I completely understand. You know, you, he was kind of in a spot. Ninety seven World Series champions, Florida Marlins. Yeah. Tell me about that team. Oh, it was a great team uh, collection of the best talent. Uh, you know, Wayne Heisinger was the owner. Uh, Dave Dombrowski was the GM. He went all in. And, uh, you know, it, it, the trade deadline is probably the best move uh, made that that may have went, you know, kind of uh, not highlighted enough. But they traded for Craig Council. And Craig Council comes in the locker room. I, I leave and... Craig Council becomes an impact player on that team uh, for Luis Castillo, who was a really talented second baseman at the time that was playing second. And uh, and Craig was in triple A for the Colorado Rockies. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Darren Dalton got traded uh, for at uh, a time when I was still with the club. And I'll never forget, we were on the road in St. Louis. I think we had dropped two games. Dalton had been... Dutch had been at the team for like maybe four days, Brett, and he had calls a team meeting and just blows the team up in the locker room, calling them prima donnas, calling, you know, this is a country club atmosphere because he just come from Philly in division. And uh, and so I think those moves, those, you know, obviously along with, you know, having, you know, the top talent, um, you know, push them. But they were a wild card team, just like uh, – you know, Philly uh, this year, they were a wild card team and made a run and, and, and won a World Series. How'd you like that yard? I hated that yard, Cots. <laughs> I hated old Joe Robbie now. Uh, what's it called now? Well, it was know. pro player at a time. And now, I mean, now it's not even in existence. Now, now they have their new stadium in Miami. Right. Uh, you know, but I'll tell you this, Brett, I, I lost probably, I played every, the following year in 98 was my first full season as a center fielder. And I hit, you know, third or third, I think Leland hit me third because everybody got traded. They dismantled that team. And uh, I think the only ones left to start the season, they traded Moises Alou. Um, you know, I mean, you could go down the list, laundry list, but um, you know, the thing that sticks out about playing in Florida, one, the yard was huge to the middle of the field, huge. Yep. And the high wall and left, right? Right field was deep. Um, but damn, the humidity and the heat was real. I mean, it was real. Like I lost 25 pounds, I think, my my first year. So I got down to like 165 and Leland sat me on the bench for four days and wouldn't let me play. <laughs> well, I so, remember you you guys are the first 
first team to wear shorts. Yes. And we, and we knew in the middle of the summer too, and you know how this is as a visitor, we come to the yard and we knew we weren't hitting on the field because there was going to be, there was going to be a a thunderstorm. So we were going to have to hit BP underneath in the cage anyway. So you could plan on it, but you're right. That heat, the only heat I could say rivaled that was if you got, July in Arlington for yep. me was just as miserable. I mean, I remember there, if we were going at the wrong time of that summer, I, I wouldn't even go out for BP. I, my first step on the field would be right after the national anthem, but that's yeah. if we were in July, but those, those two, you're right. They were the, they were the toughest. Uh, I remember in St. Louis uh, in 97, um, we had ice buckets that you'd put your cleats in because you could, the, the turf was so hot. Cause back then it was turf. Yeah. Turf was so hot, like your metal spikes would start like bending. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know about you. I, it's amazing to me. As I got older, I started to notice the little things more like the heat, because I, I when I started my career, I was in. Well, I was in Seattle, but then I went to 94. I went to Cincinnati and we had that same thing. It was similar to St. Louis it was that turf and but I was young, you know, and it was like, I don't care. I just need to get some hits. <laughs> but as I got older, that going to to Florida, going to Arlington, it really started to seep in like, wow, it's hot. And then I think, well, I played on that turf in Cincinnati all the time. But when you're a young player and you're just trying to establish yourself, uh, things don't affect you as much <laughs> as when you get old and grouchy. Yeah, no question. And, and you've got the energy and, you know, I mean, you don't have the, the nagging injuries to deal with or. Um, and, and you're just you're just so excited to be a big leaguer that nothing nothing impacts you. And I think you get a little bit, you know, in Florida, you get acclimated to the humidity a little bit more, you know, and and it, and it's an advantage. It was an advantage, I felt. After the 2000 season, you head to the Padres and you play for Boach. I had played for him in uh, in 2000, the year before you got there. I played there and with Phil <laughs> and Rhino, Ryan Klesko, obviously Hoffy. Uh, you know, one of my favorite teammates uh, to this day. I only got to play with him for a year, but we know how how special Trevor is uh, to a lot of guys, to a lot of uh, uh, friends of ours. How were yours in in uh, San Diego, Boach? Uh, one of one of the best best dudes in the game. You know, the thing it's, it's funny that what sticks out, you know, in in each, I guess, team you play for, the moments that stick out and. Um, you know, my first year there, when I got traded to the pods, I got traded late. There was an injury to uh, to a pitcher in, in Florida, and uh, I got traded to San Diego for Matt Clement and walked in that locker room, and there's Ricky Henderson and Tony Gwynn. <laughs> and I started in center field uh, between the two, which I look at right now and – at the time, you know, my fourth year in the big league, fourth season in the big leagues, and really didn't even under – you can't understand the the magnitude of that moment and and the opportunity to play with two Hall of Famers, uh, two of the greatest in the game. And uh, looking back on it, I was so blessed to, to, you know, be in that situation and to learn from both of them, um, you know. So the time in San Diego wasn't as successful. The records uh, weren't very good. We we didn't have the pitching at the time um, uh, to to sustain, you know, and to win. But um, 
I really enjoyed my time. I've got a lot of great friendships from from that that period, and uh, and to play for Boach and and again uh, to learn from him uh, was uh, was great. Move on to the A's. Hit three fourteen in in two thousand four, two thousand six with the A's. You went to the playoffs, lost to the Tigers. Uh, then you get to Atlanta. Uh, Bobby Cox's his squad. See, it, it seemed like we we played in a lot of the same places, just at different times. But uh, this is what caught my eye about that 08 season. You hit for the cycle. Now, people out there don't realize. First of all, how hard it is to hit for the cycle, but you kind of ha- have to be lucky too. Cots, I had one chance in my life to hit for the cycle. I had a homer, a triple, and a double going into the fifth inning. And it happened to be on a night where they were giving a million dollars away if anybody hit for the cycle. So that kind of started to filter down into the dugout. Like, hey, Booney, if you if you just get a base hit here, this woman up here, she's going to win a million dollars. And I thought, it's the fifth inning. Of course, I'm going to get a hit. I know that. Yeah. And, and you know what? You know what the topic was, Cots? It's, well, Booney, if you hit a double, are you going to stop it first? So she wins yep. the cycle. Yep. Well, I'll go slow. And we're, it's already done. Fast forward to the ninth. I'm like three for five now. And I'm telling you, Cots, I've never wanted to get a hit so bad for somebody in my life. I remember my last at bat, I hit a hard ground ball to second. And I ran so hard to first and I was out. I didn't hit for the cycle. We ended up winning the game, you know, 10 to whatever. I got three knocks, four, three or four ribbies. And it. I felt like I had the worst night of my life because I didn't follow through and get that knock that I needed. So talk about your cycle and how it, nothing you could plan on. It just it just happens. Yeah, you know, Ted Lilly was thrown for the Cubs. He was a starter and and obviously left on left. Um, I can remember, and and this is funny, the bat's sitting in my office. Um, I took up Brian McCann's bat, and uh, it was like a big-barreled, heavy, you know, just it felt terrible in my hands. And I take it up there, and first pitch he throws me is like a hanging breaking ball. I rope a, do- or a triple down the right field line and uh, go up the next step bat, use it again. He throws me a heater. I hit it out. Now I've got, you know, you got the two biggest ones out of the way. And um, – Next at bat, I, I get a single. And like you said, now everybody in the dugout's like, hey, Cots, man, you know, you're going to stretch a single out to a double. You know, they start talking. Sure enough, I get up and I hit a ball in the right center gap. I slide in and it ended up being my uh, 350th double, but it was to finish, complete the cycle. So, um, you know, a great moment in my career. Ended up getting another hit in the ninth off of, uh, oh, I forget, maybe. Uh, it might have been no, I, I don't remember. It was a single up the middle, but I went five or five that night, and it was probably the best offensive night. Uh, looking back at a career that uh, you know, you just you get in that zone, and uh, it was it was great. Yeah, another another thing I've never done either. Cuts never got five hits in one game in my life. It just it, it eluded me. Uh, you went on to Atlanta, Boston. The White Sox, where you where you played for Ozzie Gian, he was a piece of work. I, I remember playing with him. He was our kind of our our swing guy in Atlanta. And uh, everything you say about him as a manager, I I can picture Ozzie being that type of guy. He'd probably be really fun to play for. Uh, went to Milwaukee, back to the Padres um, in 2012. 
and you finished there in 2013, 276 for a career, like you said, 350 doubles, over 1,700 hits. Great career. And the question is, from there, at the end of your career, when you realize that, hey, I'm going to retire soon, were you starting to think that this is something I want to pursue after baseball? I want to stay in the game. I, 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 want, to, I want to be on maybe, you know, maybe that side of the ledger now, management. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, I think, you know, and maybe you ask, you, you know, the way you word that question or, or just talk about it, I think the influence of the managers I played for really gave me the desire um, to, to want to do this, to, to be around those guys, you know, the, the Franconas that, that, you know, just you could see the, the passion and the care for the guys. And I think, I hope that comes across to my clubs that, uh, you know, I care about each and every one of these guys. And, and so I think it started when I was playing, you know, you, you send out in center field and the perspective looking in um, it's, it's reverse, you know, a lot of catchers are great managers. And for me, um, you know, I always thought the game and maybe that had something to do, Brett, with what you were talking about, the pitching side, you know, being in college and pitching as well. Um, it just always seemed to think the game. And uh, and when I got done, I got that opportunity uh, from the Padres to go into a special assistant role and 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 see which direction, you know, see if it was the dugout or see if it was, you know, the scouting side or the management side. Um, when in baseball operations, but I was really uh, attracted to the dugout and uh, ended up starting my coaching career in San Diego with Bud Black as his hitting coach in 15 and uh, quickly moved to Oakland as a bench coach for Bob Melvin. And, uh, and now to, to be leading this organization up in Oakland, um, you know, it, it took a while, but I, I truly believe that I wasn't ready, even though I may have thought I was ready. Uh, when I got done playing to manage and uh, in the previous years as coaches, as a coach, but really doing the several different roles that I fulfilled, you know, whether it was special assistant to the GM, whether it was the hitting coach, the bench coach, uh, quality control coach, and then the third base coach last year in infield, uh, uh, you know, it really, it, all of those roles really helped me uh, get where I'm at and, and prepare me for, for what I'm doing right now. The one question I have, because this is kind of before, uh, this wasn't around when 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 I was playing. Probably when you were playing, there was no such thing as a quality control coach. Tell the listeners out there what the hell is a quality control coach? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a position that allows uh, the organization to have an extra coach on a staff, uh, given a special kind of assignment if there is one, or to basically be an extension of a bench coach role. You know, a bench coach role really sometimes bench coaches get buried in just all the preparation, right, and all the computer work and and the printing of the lineup cards, and and they don't get out enough to 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 feel the heartbeat of a club and. So sometimes that's used for that. Um, you know, I, I, as a quality control coach, uh, helped with the outfield. I helped, you know, I was an extension of, of the bench coach. And, and, and if Bob had anything on his plate that he wanted addressed, you know, he would feed me something and I would, I would go work on it, you know? So, um, it's, it's really a title that gives some flexibility to, to a role that you, you it can become dynamic on a staff. 
this past year you did it, but you, you'd interviewed before for, for the manager position. Uh, take me through the interview process a little bit, probably different than what people on the outside think it is a little more intricate. It is intricate. It's extensive. Um, I went through, uh, if I, I would have to count them, I think five or six different interviews, Detroit, Pittsburgh, uh, Houston, Boston, um, obviously Oakland and each one's different. Each organization. Um, I went to San Francisco as well. Uh, you know, some are seven hours, some are two days. Um, some, you know, start with, uh, the GM and his, you know, intimate group. And then you get passed on to the analytic group and then you get passed on to maybe the business group or, uh, the communications department wants to know, you know, uh, things about you, um, how you'd interview. There was a mock interview, um, in one, and and then you know then you if you pass all those things and you actually get through the first portion, uh, you may get an opportunity to to have dinner or be in an environment with the whole baseball operations and ownership, right? So it's a grind. It is a grind, and uh, you know you talked about you know the year, and I think the reflection is you you can't really understand. And you you kind of said this at the beginning the magnitude of the position. Uh, it's it's real. And, and you don't feel that even as a bench coach or as a third base coach, you don't feel the magnitude of the position. No, I think you're right too. Cause you can go home and it's not on you. I mean, as much as, as much as you wear it, just being an employee, being a third base coach, being a bench coach, of course you're, you're passionate about it. Of course you're living and dying with the, with the wins and the loss, but at the end of the day, it's not on your head. It's on that skipper's head. So, yeah, I could completely imagine the, the different and and the uh, the enormity of the position because it's all on you. All the great. I'll tell you what you're winning every day. You're winning World Series championships. I couldn't imagine how great the perks are. But there's a there's a there's a downside to it, too. And you got to wear it when things are tough. It's like being a player when when you're having great years and you're hitting 300 and everybody wants to talk to you and every article is great about how great of a player you are. Well, there's the flip side where you're having that tough year and you got hurt and, and things aren't going good and you're hitting 234. You kind of got to wear it there too. So I can see both sides, but uh, managerial, it's just probably a little bit tougher because you can't do anything about it. Like you said, players are the guys that play. All you can do as a manager, I think from the outside looking in, I, I just say, you know, these guys, all they can do, is get your team ready to to put them in position to to have the most success they have. Once that national anthem's over with, it's kind of out of your hands. Yeah, you're going to make the lefty righty, you know, you're going to make the changes on the pitching staff. But the bottom line is, your players executing, and and it's really not. You can't grab a bat. But I'd say Cots now watching some of the velocity of these pitchers, you don't want to grab a bat. No, that's accurate. I, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, it, Brett. Well, busy off season, huh? It's different. Skipper, you got to go to winter meetings. You got to be on, you got to be, you know, I couldn't imagine what you're doing. I know you're doing a lot, but uh, pretty awesome. Great career, Cots. I appreciate you coming on the, on the podcast. All the, all the best going forward in the future in, in Oakland. And what we do each and every podcast at the end of the podcast 
as we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone29. I'm Dan Levy, B-A-S-S on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.